Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. We're in the book of James, and uh, this is, I think, part two or three, two, part two in the, in the, the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to James chapter one. Uh, if you, it's one of those little small books at the very end of your Bible. Um, if you get to Hebrews, Hebrews is a big book. Just find your way to Hebrews. It's the next one after that. The letter of James. And we're reading from verses 19 to 27 this morning. Um, I've made myself um, confused because I've got the ESV in front of me, but I've got the New Living Translation on the screen. So maybe I'll just turn my back on you and read it off the screen, uh, and uh, you can follow along. So understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word, you must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. If you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Father, we just thank you for your word to us. Uh, We want to be humble this morning. We don't want to sit in authority over your word. We want to sit under it and let your authority speak to our hearts, shape our lives, direct our steps, and um, and change our Monday through to Saturday. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, so every sincere Christian who has been one for at least two weeks has found themselves in situations where the express teachings of Jesus conflict with a course of action that they would prefer to take. I'll say it again, you've been in that situation, you've been a Christian for more, if you try and live like a Christian for a week or more, you're going to at some point come to a place where there's a situation in front of you, and um, if I do what Jesus said to do in this situation, then I'm choosing the hard path. There's another way, there's the way what I want to do, and that's, that's the easier thing. If I do what Jesus wants me to do, that's the hard thing. In those moments of decision, we really only have two options. Option one, we take a deep breath and we do what Jesus said. Let's call this option, yes, Lord. All right? The other option is that we do what we prefer. We would call this option, not now, Jesus. Okay? So... Jesus says, don't be anxious. We find ourselves in a situation where anxiety looks like a good option. We have the choice. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'll lay my anxiety aside and I'll trust you. Or, not now, Jesus. Anxiety seems like a good idea, all right? Um, Love my enemies. Um, A situation where I'm confronted with an enemy. I have the the option. Um, Yes, Lord, I will... I will lay aside my uh, feelings right now and I will love my enemy. Or, not now, Jesus, I need to uh, fight my enemy. Shush, Jesus. All right? So those are the two options. 
Uh, we wouldn't say it as, in our minds, we don't say it as bluntly as not now Jesus, you know, shush Jesus. We don't say it like that. Usually we'll convince ourselves that Jesus never had this particular situation in mind when he said this stuff. His, his teachings, if you look at the Greek, they don't actually apply in this situation, all right? So, um, the original context means something else. Our text today, and in fact the whole letter of James, is an appeal to sincere, to sincere Christians. This is the whole letter, okay? There is one unifying theme in this letter. The whole letter is an appeal to sincere Christians to keep saying, yes, Lord, when you feel like saying, not now, Jesus. That's, the, that's my best shot at a summary of the book of James. James is grabbing his friends by the coat, by these collars and saying, keep saying yes, Lord. Keep saying yes, Lord. Persevere. Stick it out. Keep saying yes, Lord, when you feel like saying, not now, Jesus. Not now. Our passage today has uh, three paragraphs in my Bible. Uh, three paragraphs. And I've attempted a little bit of a summary. I think the next slide here, there's the three paragraphs. Um, it lays, it lays something out like this. There's more, there's more than this there, but in the interest of keeping things to a reasonable hour, three, uh, three main headings would be this. The first paragraph is about facing the temptation of anger. Facing the temptation of anger. And James is going to say, be slow to anger. Okay, be slow to anger. Then he's going to um, lay out a large principle, which kind of is this kind of sandwich in the middle, really. Um, of the, the two temptations. The large principle is be doers of the word and not hearers. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then the last paragraph from verse 26 onwards, he talks about if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The temptation is to have a talk feast, is to... Is to um, trade, yeah, all hooey and no dewey, to trade lots of words for action, okay, and think that you're being spiritual. The temptation is to talk a lot. James says pure and undefiled religion is humble action, humble action. Now, um, most commentators I looked at, when you when you look at commentaries on the book of James, the general, um, I would say 80% of them, maybe 90% bones we've been looking would say that James is just a, a grab bag of wisdom for lots of different kind of situations. James is sitting down and he's writing to his friends and he's, he's just got things to say about anger and then his mind wanders a little bit. He talks about doing the word and not hearing and then he thinks about orphans and widows. I'll write a bit about that. Later on he talks a bit more about the taming the tongue. Faith without works is dead. Um, wisdom from above. He, he's just, it's a grab bag of lots of um, disconnected thoughts. And uh, they're all really good. And you can read the book of James like that. Most people do. Most commentators say that's what it's about. It took me a long time to find a commentary that agreed with me that there is, in fact, a really consistent theme through James and that James is writing into a very specific situation. And um, I think that when we understand that, um, the book comes to life a bit more. I want to use a phrase, um, a shorthand phrase to uh, that with a big idea attached. The, the phrase is the way of Jesus. You, have you heard that phrase before? We, when someone talks about the way of Jesus, that phrase means it's kind of like an, a big bucket, a big bucket term, which captures the ideas of um, the teachings of Jesus, 
the example of Jesus and the way he lived, his attitude, his posture towards the world, his humility and his grace. It wraps all of the things up about what we know Jesus said and did, puts it in a bucket and calls it the, the way of Jesus. And the call, the call to follow Jesus is a call to walk in his way, to walk in the way of Jesus, to live our lives um, saturated in the approach Jesus took to his life. All right, that's you're familiar with that term. You should be. You're gonna you read if you read Christian books and stuff. You're gonna come across the phrase, the way of Jesus. The earliest Christians referred to themselves using this phrase. They were the people of the way, people of the way of Jesus, people who lived in imitation of. Jesus. They didn't call themselves Christians to start with. That was a name that outsiders gave them. Outsiders would look at them, who are those guys and what are they doing? Oh, they're, they're Christians. They're Christians. They're, they're Messiah people. Christ means Messiah, anointed one. And the, the language on the street was those guys over there who are following this Messiah guy, they're the, they're the crazy Messiah people. All right? They're Christians. That was the name outsiders gave them. But Inside the Christian faith, inside the church family, inside those early believers, the way they referred to themselves was, we are people of the way. We are people of the way of Jesus. In Acts 9, Saul was on the rampage looking to lock up Christians. He was, he was a key figure in the persecution, the early persecution against Christians. It says in Acts 9 that Saul's still breathing threats and murders against anyone found belonging to the way. Acts 18, Apollos was an eloquent and competent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In the way of the Lord. Acts 19, in the synagogues in Ephesus, Paul was confronted by some stubborn men who continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. Speaking evil of the way. I want you to think of the recipients of this letter as among the very first people of the way. The very first, uh, among the very first people who embraced all that Jesus was and is into their own way of life. We are people of the way. They were Jewish. They had embraced the words and teachings of the Lord. Perhaps some of them were in Jerusalem when the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost and were among those who were baptized that day. There were 3,000 baptized that day. And uh, not too much longer later, there was 5,000 and the church grew and grew. So, so we're talking about very early, early Christians. We're not talking about people late in the New Testament. We're talking about right there at the beginning. That's who this letter is written to. Um, and we know that those people hung on the apostles' teaching. They wanted to know about the way. They wanted to know the way of Jesus. We've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've realized we've crucified the Messiah. <laughs> we've repented. He's poured out his forgiveness into our hearts, poured out his spirit into our hearts. And what do we do now? We want to walk in his ways. We want to know his ways. How are we going to do that? We're going to sit at the feet of those who were with him for three years. So Acts 2 tells us that those early people, those early followers of the way, gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they, they lapped it up. They loved Jesus. They loved hearing about him. They loved hearing what he did. And they, they said, we, we want to live that way. We want to walk in the way of Jesus. Now, 
um, it was good times in those early days. And uh, they had a lot of favor in Jerusalem, and people were like, no, this is, you know, they were kind of crazy, but they're kind of good guys. But we know that at about the seven-year mark, after the day of Pentecost, something happened which um, triggered, triggered a, a quick downward spiral for people of the way. That was the murder, or the, the, um, the murder of a man named Stephen. He was martyred for his faith. He stood up and proclaimed some things, was shouted down as a blasphemer, and was taken outside Jerusalem and stoned. That, that began a great persecution against Christians and the people of the way who had been having quite a good time of it staying in Jerusalem suddenly found Jerusalem a very hot place to be and needed to get out of town. So many believers fled from Jerusalem. They dispersed themselves into the outlying regions and maybe cities nearby uh, and they, they gapped it there. They lost their families, some of them. They lost their livelihoods. They had to leave behind their lands, their homes. Their loved ones were perhaps imprisoned or even killed. So it was a very difficult time. And the teachings of Christ and the way of Jesus, which had been so appealing, was suddenly very inconvenient to live out. That's the context that James has written into. The way of Jesus, which had been um, nice in theory, was suddenly very inconvenient to actually live out. They were under pressure. They were under pressure. And if we kind of, when you're reading in the New Testament epistle, you're listening to one side of a conversation. You kind of, you don't know what's kind of going on. You're trying to read between the lines and go, what, what's going on on the other side? We don't know everything. But according to the things James touches through his epistle, these people, as they're experiencing this persecution and pressure, um, are angry. And they'd be justified losing your home and perhaps your family. Um, they, they are tempted to blame God from chapter 1. They are cursing their persecutors in chapter 3. They are considering murder. Um, and this is a funny thing. In the, in the commentaries, uh, this is in chapter, chapter 2, it talks about, hey, you guys, you know, murder is not a good idea. You would think, what would Christians be thinking about murder? Well, we just have to sit ourselves in these situation. Think about the experiences that they've had. They've lost families and loved ones, and they're being rounded up. Their lands are being taken off them. They're being abused and oppressed by the wealthy. All these things are happening. And I can imagine after a few weeks of that and living on the street, you'd be thinking to yourself in your cardboard box about the life you used to have and what has been perpetrated to you because of your faith. You might be considering you might be considering some very strong retaliation against those who are perpetrating it. So they, like, it's not theoretical stuff. When James says, you know, don't murder, <laughs> he's speaking to Christians who, like, for, the, for them that's probably a real consideration. Um, they're quarreling and fighting among themselves. They're questioning one another's motives. They're resorting to wisdom from below rather than pulling wisdom from above. Okay, The wisdom they're, they're resorting to has the smell of sulfur about it, not the, not the aroma of heaven. And, and they're, ang- they're angry. I said they're angry. There's injustice. And, um, and they are those who, who have heard Jesus say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, because they're going to be satisfied and their lives aren't very satisfying right now. What would you say to such people? What would you say to someone who's in the bitter throes of that kind of upside down world? Well, what does James say? He only says one simple thing, and I've already said it. He, he says to them, 
I know it's bad, but keep saying yes, Lord. I know it's difficult. I know the times are, the times are very tough. Your circumstances uh, uh, give you every reason to be angry. But I want you to keep saying yes, Lord. That's the, that's the simple message of the book of James. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> um, um, so here's how it works in paragraph one. Oh, can we go back to that paragraph one, two, three thing? Is that, is that all right? Oh, I don't know, somewhere in there. I had the three paragraphs. The first one was on anger. So for example, on anger, the way of Jesus does not become obsolete just because your, your blood pressure is high. Okay? Just because, just because there's, ran, there's a big opportunity for anger in front of you, this does not mean the way of Jesus becomes obsolete. Jesus teaching on anger are for precisely those times when we feel justified in our anger. Okay? That's what it, that's what it's for. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to talk, look at it in a moment, talks about anger, and it sounds lovely on the mountain. It sounds lovely when Jesus is sitting on the mountain giving the talk about anger. This is amazing, Jesus. Um, but that teaching is not for the mountainside moment. It's for when you're angry. Okay? That's, that's when it's to be applied. The way of Jesus does not become obsolete just because the circumstances have arisen in which the way of Jesus is supposed to be applied. Um, paragraph three, uh, on religious talk as a substitute for action. Jesus has some stuff to say about that. The way of Jesus cannot so easily be set aside. Jesus calls us to action. The temptation is to resort to a talk fest and to talk spiritual, talk spiritual, but not to live spiritual. Jesus' teaching on the emptiness of showy spirituality is there for precisely the times when the way of Jesus is going to cost us something. All right? These two applications kind of sandwich the main principle in the book of James. Summarizes the whole book. Be doers of the word. Keep saying yes to the way of Jesus. And the one who perseveres, it says in verse 25 here, in that that middle sandwich, the one who perseveres, the one who keeps saying yes, even in the face of every reason to say no, not now, Jesus, the one who perseveres and keeps saying yes, not being a hero who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Okay? You want to you wanna sit squarely in the place of blessing? Say yes to Jesus and keep saying yes to Jesus. So let's think a little bit about the first one, anger. What did Jesus say about anger? Remember these these are these are people of the way, and they've hung on Jesus' words. They probably didn't hear Jesus, but they've heard the disciples, and the disciples have said this to them. Let's go next slide. This is there he is on the mountainside, and it's all very good, isn't it? It looks nice there on the mountainside, and it sounds Jesus, your teaching's amazing. And um, he said this: You have heard our ancestors were told, you, sh- you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone. You're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Okay, that's... Now, now on the mountainside, people are loving that. People are going, yeah, Jesus, that's that's a pretty good teaching. None of the the Pharisees teach like like this guy. He's amazing. At, at, At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, all the people come off the mountain when they follow Jesus, and it says, when he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. What great teaching. What great teaching on anger, Jesus. What great teaching on anger. But at the crisis point, it's not great teaching. 
at the crisis point, it really hurts to put into practice. At the crisis point, we say, not now, Jesus. Not now with what you said about anger. This situation calls for anger. Okay? So James, James, and, and the commentators point out that right through James, James just reaches back into the Sermon on the Mount, reaches back into the teaching of Jesus and drags it right into their moment and plonks it. And here's an example. Jesus has said this about anger. They are now in a situation where they feel justified in their anger and James is going to grab, drag Jesus' teaching right into that moment and land it on them. So he says this, understand this, dear brothers and sisters, you must be all quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. The idea here is that you have two ears and one mouth, and they should be used in proportion. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's a really important um, statement there. And in your Bibles, you um, so so when people are translating the Bible, like the, if you just translate word for word straight from the original Greek. Plonk it straight into English. It makes no sense, and there's no chap, there's no sentence breaks, there's no full stops in Greek, there's no capital letters. It's all just it. It doesn't. We could not read it. So translators have to make some decisions about how do we make this readable and what's actually being said here, and how do we put it in English? Okay, and all your translators are wrong on this version. <laughs> it sounds so arrogant, eh? So what? What? This is pretty close to what it says. Human anger does not achieve or accomplish or produce the righteousness of God. Now, in in your Bible, if you're looking at it, it might say something like, mine does, the anger of of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. That's not actually what it says. That's that's them kind of, how do we make sense of this? Maybe Maybe it means this. And the decision there, maybe, is that anger isn't, isn't very righteous of you, okay? Don't be angry because it's not a very righteous way to live. That's what that reads like, but it's not actually what it says. There's another option for what this means, and I think it's closer to what actually they need to hear in this moment. When you're angry and you're fuming and, and you're in a situation where you feel jolly well justified to be angry, you don't need to be told it's not very righteous. <laughs> what, but but what you what you could be told that would make a difference is to be told, hey, you you, you think you've got every right to be angry, and maybe so, but do you know what? Anger does not accomplish what God wants to do. Okay, righteousness um, is the same Greek word as justice. Justice. Anger does not bring about God's justice. Anger does not bring about what God wants to accomplish here. Okay? Anger does not accomplish God's justice. Psalm 96, I had a little place here. Lots of places in the Bible and the New Testament where righteousness doesn't mean right behavior. It means God's faithfulness to see a thing through. God's justice. Let the heavens be glad. And the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, and all that fills it. This is Psalm 96. Let the fields exult, let the trees sing for joy. Why? Because the Lord is coming. Why, why is that good news? Well, he comes to judge the earth. 
He comes to, he comes to bring his purposes to bear on the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness or justice. He is bringing his justice to bear and the peoples in his faithfulness. I think that's, that's what this verse is saying. It's not, it's not a guilt trip on Christians. Hey, you're angry and you know, that, that's not very good of you. I don't, like that, that's what you get out of it. That's good. But when you're really angry, you need to be told, hey, drop the anger. You're not going to accomplish anything that God wants to accomplish with that anger in your hand. Put it down. It's not a, it's not a tool that God wants you. It's, it's hijacking the way of Jesus. There's the way of Jesus, and then there's the big mallet of anger in your hand. Put it down. It's hijacking the way of Jesus. Okay, that's, I think, the idea here. Anger is a blunt force instrument. It's a mallet, it's a crowbar, it's a sledgehammer. We grab anger when things aren't going our way. I'm thinking of a guy in a workshop, he's got a seized, he's got a, one of those jolly big, like, he's got a tractor wheel and a big seized nut on the wheel and he's got to, he's got to reach for a lot of leverage to, to get that nut to turn, to pull the tractor wheel off, right? You don't use your little little normal wrench you, you you put a pipe on the end of a big thing a strong bar and then you add another pipe on the end of that and you throw as much pressure as you can at that thing to get that nut to turn anger is like grabbing the longest pipe and trying to like manhandle that nut and turn it we grab anger when things aren't going our way and we have to coerce it Okay, that's what anger is anger is a mallet it's crowbar to coerce the thing in my favour and in this case, here's these poor Christians experiencing incredible injustice. And they, they are reaching off the tool shelf for their big anger crowbar to lever this thing in their direction. Okay? I demand justice, and I'm going to reach for anger to get some traction here, to get some action. And James says... It's not the way of Jesus. It, 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 you'll accomplish something, but it, it won't. But it's going to hijack. It's going to hijack God's justice, God's just, faithful keeping of His promises. It's going to hijack that. Dallas Willard puts it like this. He says, uh, "What you think you can get done with anger, you can get done better without it." What you think you can get done with anger, you can almost always get done better without it. James says anger hijacks the way of Jesus. Now this is difficult. Put yourself in their shoes. They're facing some severe injustice. And is their anger justified? Well, maybe you could make a pretty good case that anger is justified. But James says deal with that anger quickly. Let it go. With meekness, receive the implanted word, because that's able to save your souls. Okay, a- anger is, is a wrecking ball. It doesn't make things better, it just makes a lot of rubble. With meekness, receive the implanted word. Okay, it's, it's a funny phrase, isn't it? The word has already been implanted. These are Christians who have heard the word of Jesus about anger and what to do in this situation. And he's saying, receive the word that's already been implanted. Receive it. You can have it in there and not receive it. 
he's saying receive the implanted word that's able to save your souls trust Jesus with it all right I'm going to skip the skip the last one um, the one the one about um, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue he deceives his heart that's the temptation to retreat to talking instead of action talk is cheap especially when the way of Jesus summons us to costly love okay when the way of Jesus calls us to costly loving action talk is a we can deceive ourselves that's what it says we can deceive ourselves we can deceive our hearts that talking a lot about spiritual stuff is just as good as doing something okay that's self-deception and James says actions speak louder than words I want to finish with uh, the great principle in the middle read be doers of the word which once again is straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Does anyone remember a place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about being a doer and not just a hearer? Um, if you don't know the Sermon on the Mount very well, it should, you should have, it's one of those places in your Bible you should fear, sort of visit fairly frequently. You should know where to find it. It's in Matthew chapter 5 through to 7. And if you become familiar with it, you'll know that it ends with Jesus telling a little story. And there it is. Anyone who listens to my teaching and does it, or follows it, is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes and torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds his house on the sand. And I didn't have room to write the rest of it, but but it goes bad for that guy, all right? It goes bad for that guy who builds on the sand. Never in the history of the world has hearing the word been easier. Um, for for James's hearers to hear, the, to hear the word, they have to go sit at the feet of the apostles and hear them retell the stories and hear them. Eventually it got written down. But even when it was written down, up until the medieval ages, you had to head down to the, like, the local cathedral or church to hear the word. You didn't have a copy of it in your house. You certainly didn't have it on your phone. Uh, it wasn't until the invention of the printing press, Gutenberg, the Industrial Revolution, when paper became easy to produce, that you and I found ourselves in the position where you might have multiple copies of a Bible. That is like, that's, that's a historical novelty. That's, that's not... That's not the history of humanity. This is a historical novelty to have such easy access to the word. So hearing the word has never been easy, easier. Okay. Plus, if you've got a phone, not only have you got multiple translations at your fingertips, you have got li- literally, I don't know what, I, I haven't measured, I didn't go on YouTube to check. All right. But I would hazard a guess that there are millions of hours of sermons and podcasts and talks about the word. Okay? I, I have a little app on my phone, it's a particular resource, and I looked on there, there's a guy doing a bit of a teaching series on Revel- Re- Revelation, 97 lectures on Revelation. Um, I remember John Piper took like eight years to walk his way through Romans, and all those are online. If you want to know what any one verse in Romans is about, you can look up, you know, sermon number 7003, has, um, he, he teases, never have we had such a wealth of word at our fingertips. We are the most hearing-saturated Christians in the history of Christianity. 
Are we the most sanctified Christians in the history of Christianity? Hearing Jesus and walking in the way of Jesus are not the same. You've got to hear to walk in the way, but just because you're hearing doesn't mean you're walking in the way of Jesus. We can deceive ourselves. Verse 22, if anyone thinks he's religious, does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart, and that person's religion is worthless. The self-deception goes like this. I'm a very spiritual person because I listened to seven chapters of the Bible today and three podcasts this week. I'm, my spiritual tank is full. Well, according to Jesus and James, better is one sermon applied than a thousand heard. Better is one verse actioned than a thousand memorized. Could you believe that? That's what this is saying. Better is one verse obeyed than a thousand memorized, sitting in the reservoir, but unactioned. Jesus is speaking to people, oh, sorry, James is speaking to people who have heard the word. They've heard, they've heard the teachings of Jesus. They've heard what, it, what life on the way is supposed to look like. But now that they're hard-pressed, they are tempted to forget what they've heard. Not now, Jesus. Shush, Jesus. <laughs> I know what you said, but this is, a, this is a crisis moment. What good is all that time in the word if you don't take action on what you saw there? What good is the hours of YouTube teaching from that amazing Bible teacher if it makes not one whiff of difference in your life? God is not impressed with intake. He's not impressed with consumption of the word. He blesses action. He blesses action. The one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and says, yes, Lord, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. God does not bless your hearing. God blesses your doing. That's the simple refrain running through the book of James. In times of crisis, at the sticky point, at the ragged edge, when you can make a jolly good case for saying, not now, Jesus. Keep saying, yes, Lord. Keep saying, ah, is this what you meant when you said, love your enemy? (laughs) Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. James's final words are these. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, he's talking to people who are in the crisis moment, going, I know what Jesus wants, but man, this course of action seems right right now. It's the only thing I can see in front of me. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Keep saying yes, Lord, and keep helping each other to keep saying yes, Lord. Would you stand? I want to pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the, this word. We thank you for this amazing little letter. And though we don't know 
uh, the precise details of what these people were walking through. Lord, we, we see the touch points in our own lives. We, we know the challenges of obedience at the sticky point. Um, we know the simplicity of obedience when the test is far away. We know the difficulty when the test is in our face. And we want to ask, Lord, that um, this... Um, this refrain that runs through the book of James would be deep in our bones, Lord, that we wouldn't have to like remind ourselves of it. It would just be like reverberating through our beings that we are people who say, yes, Lord, in the face of adversity. We are people who say, yes, Lord, even here, I will walk in your ways. I want to pursue you even here. Um, Never is a good time to say, not now, Jesus. We want to be people who say, yes, Lord. So Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross so that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honour of your name. Amen.